Okay, first, a warning. I am going to talk about math. Don't worry, won't be bad. 1644, a monk named Marin Mersenne gets obsessed for a while with prime numbers. Remember prime numbers? They're like the atoms of math, indivisible. They cannot be divided by any other number than themselves. So three is a prime number. You can only divide it by three versus four, which you can divide by two and you can get two. Remember? Okay, so Mersenne. So he had a formula that he thought could predict prime numbers, okay? This is Paul Hoffman, who wrote about this in his book, The Man Who Loved Only Numbers. He says that mathematicians have been searching for a formula like this to find prime numbers for nearly 2,000 years at that point. Euclid, way, way back, 2,300 years ago, had proved that there's an infinite number of prime numbers. But he gave no formula for how to find them. I mean, they're easy yet small numbers. You know, we can do the math in our head. Seven's prime, nothing divides into it. Eleven's prime. If I give you a really big number, now you're going to have to start calculating, okay? So this monk came up with a formula. Mersen creates this formula, and he uses it to spit out prime numbers. And one of the prime numbers that he said that he discovered was, and this is going to sound a little bit technical, 2 raised to the 67th power, that is 2 times 2 times 2 times 2, 67 times, minus 1. And if that was confusing, all you need to know is this number of Mersenne's, 2 raised to the 67th minus 1, was famous among mathematicians. That's how his paper ended. He said it was a prime number. This is 1644. So 250 years later, we're into the 20th century. I think it's 1903. And you have this mathematician that shows up at a mathematical conference. And, and, he, and who is this? What is the conference? Where are we? Um, it's here in the United States. His name is Frank Nelson Cole. And he gave his talk a very unassuming title. He titled his talk on the factorization of large numbers. And he went to the blackboard, and he wrote 2 to the 67th minus 1. Wait, wait, does he say anything? He says nothing. He says not a word. He, he just, just walks up to the blackboard right. and just like... He writes that, and of course, everybody in the audience knows that that's the famous Merson Prime. And he writes <laughs> equals, and then he writes out a 21-digit number. Oh, in other words, when you take 2 and then multiply it by 2, 67 times, and then subtract 1, right. that is this number. It's exactly. 21 digits exactly. long. Okay. Equals this number. Then he moved over to a blank piece of blackboard and he wrote down two numbers okay one is a nine digit number mm -hmm. times a 12 digit number he writes those two numbers out okay so that's two numbers that were sitting there on the board multiplication problem and and then he did the multiplication you know just like the way they taught us back in second grade to do it you know seven times one he put down the seven you know he went through the whole steps just long multiplication long, does he say anything this is not a word everybody sits there silently now, remember, the whole idea of a prime number is you should not be able to take two numbers and then multiply them together and get a prime number as the result. It's supposed to be indivisible. If you multiply two numbers together and you got this 21-digit number as a result, then that 21-digit number is not prime. And if Mersenne thought it was prime, which he did, his formula supposedly spits out prime numbers, this one of them, and his formula, 250 years old, is just wrong. So, picture. Here's Frank Nelson Cole at the blackboard slowly doing long multiplication, right? Of these two huge numbers. It takes a while, right? They're big numbers. It takes minutes as this room full of mathematicians just watches them. Lots of them, I'm sure, scrutinizing him for any math errors. He still has not said a word. And then he gets to his result. 
And indeed, it ends up being that 21-digit number. And now the whole place erupts into applause. You know, legend has it this is the first time at a math conference that people got up and applauded, and he just returns to his seat without a word. And then later someone asked him, how long did it actually take you to figure out that Mersenne was wrong, that indeed this number has two factors. And he said that he spent three years of Sundays working on this. Three years of Sundays. Paul says these three years of Sundays were probably spent solving the problem by trying every possible solution. Dividing that huge number, 2 to the 67th power minus 1, by one number, and then the next number, and then the next. Three years of Sundays is 156 Sundays. For 155 of them, Frank Nelson Cole failed. Until, finally, on the 156th Sunday, Frank Nelson Cole found a number that would divide it evenly. Which, Paul says, is par for the course. You know, that's what science is about. It's real people banging their heads against walls. And years of false starts, that's the other thing. We don't talk about the researcher who spent two years trying to find what this gene did and then gave up. Or, you know, spent three years trying to find a planet outside the solar system and gave up. And, you know, someone else eventually did. It's, you know, it's more a combination of insight and hard work. Because, and failure. And failure. Because people who think outside the box and achieve things outside the box often entertain a lot of wacky ideas that don't turn out to be true in the science world. I mean, Isaac Newton had lots of weird ideas. Charles Darwin had weird ideas that happened to be right about what they're known for. Hmm. Isaac Newton got all interested in ghosts and all sorts of occult stuff. Really? Uh, yeah. Wait, wait, and did he believe in ghosts or did he just think, like, well, we got to investigate this. Maybe there's some data here. No, he started believing in them. He Isaac Newton? Yeah. Wow. So they're known for their out-of-the-box thinking on something that turns out to be true and is wonderful. But they've also entertained a lot of other stuff. Well, today on our radio program, we have two stories of people who face impossible-seeming situations. And in each of those stories, it's like, it's like a bad action film. These two people each decide that the stakes are high enough that their best shot is to try something crazy. So crazy, it just might work. The first story is about a scientist. The second story is about, is about somebody employing this technique in his personal life, which is really something to see. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. I am hoping that all this sounds so crazy, you just might stay with us. Back one, Mr. Holland's opus. Okay, true story. Guy goes to college on a music scholarship. And then afterwards, he ends up going into science. And he becomes a cancer researcher. His name is John Brody. And 19 years after graduating, John is invited back to his old college to give a talk about his work. And the speech he gives is mainly about how important it's been in his research to think outside the box, to use an overused uh, phrase, to think outside the box, to be ready to turn away from what's familiar and try some new idea. And then after his speech, John is approached by his old orchestra teacher, a guy named Anthony Holland. And Professor Holland, to John's great surprise, says, you know, speaking of thinking outside the box, I've actually been working on an experiment for a few years that I'd like to show you. Come look at this video. I think you'll find it very interesting. So what can John do? He just actually given a whole talk about keeping an open mind. What resulted from this was the kind of scientific collaboration that almost never, ever happens. A serious cancer researcher teaming up with an amateur to try to make a breakthrough. 
Gabriel Rhodes is a documentary filmmaker, and he's been following the story from the beginning, back when John watched that video. Here's Gabriel. I've seen the video that Anthony, the orchestra teacher, showed John, and it amazed me. I saw single-cell organisms, basically round and oblong and pear-shaped blobs, swimming around under a microscope. Anthony narrates this as he goes along, and suddenly the cells stop and just self-destruct. Look what happened just now. He suddenly and dramatically disintegrated. Some burst into tiny fragments, and some look like a plastic bag that's been punctured, and their contents leak out. As Anthony explained to John, the theory behind what he was doing was simple. You know how a singer, if they hit the right frequency, can shatter a crystal glass? Well, Anthony was basically doing the same thing, directing specific frequencies at microorganisms, like bacteria and protozoa, to try and shatter them. And after a year and a half of experimentation, suddenly it worked. So Anthony showed this to John, and he and John each remember the conversation that followed a little differently, in a way that says a lot about their later collaboration. Anthony's version was entirely optimistic. He immediately jumped right to the main thing that I was interested in, and he just said, do you think you can shatter cancer cells like that? And here's John. You know, when I first heard about it, it's in the arena of UFOs, for sure. You know, he, he was putting words in my mouth already. He was saying things like, you know, he would say, do you think this would work? And I was like, you know, I would say, well, you know, it's a possibility and, you know, I'm, I'm willing to try anything. And so Anthony would go, he would, you know, in his voice, he would say, so you're saying that I could maybe cure cancer? And I was like, well, so could the oboe player downstairs. But John was willing to talk more, in part because he's so frustrated with cancer research. He thinks it's stalled. Lots of people going over the same familiar ideas, endlessly refining the same concepts, because the familiar is more likely to get funded. You know, I do think it's much like being out in Hollywood, where, you know, you might, you might go out to Hollywood thinking that you're going to be Kafka, and you might, end up, you might end up writing, you know, the worst, hackiest sitcom in the world right? Because you want to survive. So what happens in this country when the same thing happens with science? I've known John Brody for 20 years. He's a good friend of mine. And before this encounter, Anthony was just a professor who drove him really hard back when he went to college on a percussion scholarship. They weren't close or anything, but John definitely remembered Professor Holland, as he'd always known him. He probably wouldn't say this, but I sort of remember him as, I think he was disappointed in me as a musician in the orchestra because I remember him wanting to have like extra sessions with me. And I think when we had a guest composer come in, I hate to say it, I think he relegated me to like playing the triangle. <laughs> I'm so, and I'm not kidding. I seriously remember count, having to count like 67 bars to hit that one quarter note on the triangle. So when Anthony came up to him after his speech, John was flattered that this teacher he'd always respected was interested in his work. They started emailing back and forth about Anthony's video and his experiments, until finally John decided that he couldn't tell whether Anthony had something serious that could be researched, unless he drove up to see him. So he went, and he invited me along just as a fun road trip. And why not film the conversation while I'm there? Is there enough light? I'm worried about the light. Oh, yeah. 
We're up at Skidmore College in Saratoga Springs, New York, where Anthony teaches. Anthony's in his early 50s, but he's got a boyish vibe. He bounces a little when he walks. Full head of brown hair, goatee, glasses, corduroys, your basic professor. John's in his late 30s, balding but in that stylish, close-cropped way. He stays in shape, even though he works like a maniac. And over the course of their long conversation, John was surprised and impressed by how much Anthony knew, how much he'd read, how dogged he'd been in his experiments. And one thing in particular caught John's attention. In Anthony's experiments, particular frequencies seemed to target particular organisms and left others untouched, meaning there might be frequencies that could destroy cancer cells while leaving normal healthy cells alone. A potential solution, John said, to the biggest problem with most cancer treatments. So if we can find a frequency specific to cancer cells, you could put someone in a room and you hit that frequency and it's not affecting normal cells. I mean, that's the actual perfect paradigm in which to treat someone for this disease. Because what kills a patient is not the primary tumor. It's the tumors that have left the site and gone off into neighborhoods that, that, the, that the surgeon can't take out. Uh-huh. So if you could walk into a room and you can get completely zapped, right, like a like a complete CAT scan, right, and it only MRI. hits the cancer, it doesn't hurt right. healthy cells. Yeah, that would be the home run. That's the dream. Yeah. That's the dream because chemotherapy and radiation are so flawed. Both of them can cause cancer as well as treat it. Both devastate healthy cells. Anthony's machine works by pulsing the cells with electromagnetic waves at specific frequencies. And there are other scientists out there, published in peer-reviewed journals, who are also using electromagnetic waves to attack cancer cells. There's an FDA clinical trial going on right now using this method. The whole field is still very new, just a handful of people, and Anthony's system is different from others. But using electromagnetic waves to target cancer cells isn't just a fantasy dreamed up by a music professor. Then John asked Anthony how he'd gotten into these experiments in the first place. I, uh, I read an interesting book called uh, Lost Science. And uh, I'm very interested in hidden information and secret and stuff we're not supposed to know and things maybe that were known a long time ago were forgotten or something. And in that book, uh, now this is where it probably gets very kind of controversial, But I I read about a guy named Royal Raymond Reif. And the book says that in the 1930s, he built a electromagnetic frequency device, a radio frequency device, which cured cancer. I got the device. I developed a special custom-built frequency synthesis program because that's what I teach, digital audio synthesis. And I've been studying sound, physics, and acoustics for a long time. And I began to run frequencies through this device. Now, Royal Rife, for lots of people who have even heard of him, is a name synonymous with bogus cancer cures. He was an inventor in the 1930s. And the legend is that he cured a bunch of people with cancer using an electromagnetic wave device before he was destroyed by a greedy mainstream medical establishment. It's a staple of conspiracy theory websites. Google him. He's everywhere. If John wanted out of the box, Anthony and the Rife machine were way outside. And John and Anthony were just an unlikely pair. John was the head of his own lab by the age of 40. He gets hundreds of thousands of dollars from the National Institutes of Health and other very mainstream medical research organizations. 
Anthony, meanwhile, is a composer, electronics whiz, a self-taught expert in several fields, and a deep skeptic of all things mainstream, especially in medicine. He pulled me aside more than once to warn me I better be careful, my life might be in danger, because big pharmaceutical companies would try to hush up any story about a possible cancer treatment alternative. But they decided to work together, and it was just as much a personal decision as anything else. Each of them saw something in the other. They liked each other. And John thought, who cares where the electromagnetic wave theory came from? It's a potentially game-changing treatment. Why not at least test it? So he invited Anthony to come down to his lab in Philadelphia with the device. And they agreed to keep everything as low stakes as possible. Half serious, half a lark. Anthony would come for only two weeks. And they'd see what happened. This is the miracle amplifier, the secret weapon. Anthony is in a room at John's lab at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, unpacking his equipment. And the plan for the next two weeks is that Anthony will work at night after everyone else leaves, so he isn't taking time or space away from other experiments. And he has to pay his own way. No tax dollars or grant money will be spent on this. John will supervise. So here Anthony is, surrounded by amplifiers, cables, all sorts of equipment, None of which is in special cases or anything. It's all coming out of luggage, wrapped in bubble wrap. And into this room where they do molecular cloning. It's got microscopes, a big medical-grade incubator, a special sterile area called a tissue culture hood. It's high-tech. John's watching Anthony assembling his gear. It looks like you literally made this in your garage. John said, it looks like you literally made this in your garage. To me, the setup looks like it was designed by Dr. Seuss for some sci-fi movie in the 60s. There's some high-tech gear like a big glass helium-filled tube with electrodes that glows pink when it's turned on. And then this whole mess of consumer electronics. This this is a power supply that came from an electronics uh, house in Cleveland. And then the little, uh, this little 100-watt magical amp I picked up from uh, some company that sells CB radios to truckers or something on the internet. There's also two laptops, and on one, Anthony's written a program that generates frequencies to send into the device. It sounds like this. It's not a really fabulous sound. It's kind of ugly and annoying. Yeah. And then a transmitter transposes the frequencies way up out of the audible range. And then what we'll do is we'll set the cancer cells right here. And with any luck, uh, if we get the right frequency, the cancer cells may in fact start dying. For the next two weeks, Anthony works all night, every night, running experiments, taking cancer cells that have been prepared for him out of the incubator, and he pulses the cells with frequencies for hours, trying one frequency after another. John checks in on the experiments every day. There's a lot of trial and error and problems. Some of the equipment blows out and has to be replaced. And John and Anthony aren't sure what they've got until Anthony's last day, when John comes to look at the latest experiments. Let's see, they're going to be labeled 720. They're sitting in front of a microscope looking down at pancreatic cancer cells. The cells are in what looks like a tiny plastic egg carton. John looks down into the microscope and he starts to get excited. This is is pretty surprising to me. Really? Yeah. A huge percentage of the pancreatic cells that Anthony pulsed with his device are dead. They combine the pulsing with a tiny bit of chemo 
And of the cancer cells that Anthony pulsed, only 10% are still alive. A separate group of cells that he did not pulse has 60% alive. And this comparison is the key to the whole thing. In any experiment, you have the cells that you treat and the ones that you don't treat, which are called the control group. Comparing the treated cells to the control is the only way you can tell if something's working. Again, here, only 10% of the pulsed cells survived versus 60% of the control cells. It's a dramatic result. John gives everything to the lab tech, Christina, to count up the cells in a precise way, do the quantitative analysis. I mean, well, when she quantitates these, yeah. I mean, yeah. we're going to have a beautiful graph. Really? Yeah. I mean, a beautiful graph. A beautiful graph. That's code for John is thrilled. Pancreatic cancer is his specialty, and it's practically invincible. Harder to kill than other cancers. So tough that even chemo, which is poison, often barely works at all. Over the last 25 years, the biggest treatment breakthrough only added about four months to a patient's life. John starts going through his mental checklist of potential problems with the experiment. This is what he does when he's excited about new results. And he checks with Anthony about the controls. Like that's all you did to these things. And you, you took these out of the incubator, the others out? The controls did you take out? No, the controls I left in the incubator. I, I know I probably should take them out for the six or seven hours that I'm treating them, but... Um, yeah, I thought, you were, I thought you were doing that. I mean... That's why that same. first day I was asking you to do that. Right. John's expression doesn't change much, but the experiment is now a wash. The cells that Anthony was pulsing sat outside the incubator for hours at a time while he was pulsing them. Therefore, the control plates also had to sit outside the incubator for the exact same amount of time. Otherwise, they don't count as controls. It was an amateur's mistake, and of course Anthony is an amateur. But getting the controls exactly right turns out to be one of the hardest parts of any experiment. So even though Anthony's two weeks are up, he has to leave today, they've got to do the experiments again. The first chance Anthony has to go back to John's lab is six months later. It's a whole day's drive. He's on a sabbatical, so he can be here for five weeks this time. I visit him about three weeks in. You ask me how it's going, it's like the tale of two cities. It's going really great on one hand, and it's going really badly on the other hand. It's going really great because we have absolute proof, and I, we'll see what John says later today when we, when we see him, but we're blowing cancer cells away. This is how Anthony sees it, because night after night, he's watching cancer cells die and taking thousands of time-lapse photos and videos as it happens, like the video that he first showed John. The problem is, these photos are not absolute proof at all. Not to any scientist, not to John. Cancer cells die for all kinds of reasons. Absolute proof means only one thing. Counting the cells in the experiments, the treated ones and the control groups, and comparing them. So while Anthony might think they have proof, John would never say that. In these last three weeks, Anthony's had a series of setbacks. Basically, the photos are all he's got from a bunch of experiments that had to be thrown out. But finally, he starts to get incredible results. John gave him leukemia cells for the first time, and the pulsing seems to have killed 30% more of the cancer cells compared with the controls. You're doing something to these. Oh yeah, I have, You're video. Doing I have video. We can get connotation on this. Really? Hey, if we can get 
quantitative so numbers out of this. I'll I keep mean, hammering these guys. John turns to Anthony and starts going through his mental checklist. Again, he's excited. He's thinking that maybe, if everything's right, these results are good enough to publish in a paper. Two or three nights. Now, Anthony, I'm serious about this. You need to think about, for me, like anything I've done for you, you need to think about is there any, these plates just sit out here, and then you bring the other plate in there. Right. And there's nothing different that you do to those plates. Nope. Except for the. the, Just electronic pulsing. Because if we publish this, it's like. Your name will go first. My name will go last. It's our names on the line. No, no I think I we're should. We're married together. Yeah. I, no, I understand that. So uh, I think I should be like a, is married. I should be a technical footnote at the end, you know, thanks to Anthony Holland for assistance. Yeah. You know? I, think, I think that's absurd. <laughs> <laughs> I would, that's one of the me. most absurd comments you've really? made really? since I've known you. Well. And you've made a few. That's okay, so with, that's okay with me. I, I mean that. Careful here. A couple days later, I talked to John up on the roof of his apartment building. They're still waiting for the numbers, the analysis. But now they've got both leukemia and pancreatic experiments that they're fired up about. I mean, they're astounding results and sort of unprecedented. There could be a lot of reasons behind it besides the pulsing, and that's why we need to reproduce it. What makes me nervous and anxious is if I'm truly the only cancer researcher using this apparatus um, since Royal Rife because, again, that puts even more pressure on me to publish something that's real. And, of course, I want it to work. It's potentially something very exciting, but still very much up in the air. Anthony's in a very different place. Somewhere over the rainbow. Yeah, I kind of feel like that. We're living in Oz right now because we're doing the impossible. What happened? What was Oz all about? Oz was all about Dorothy goes to a wonderful place where miracles happen. That's where I am. Because we're proving the impossible. We're proving that a Rife machine kills cancer. We're not proving. It's been proven. The question is, how much proof can we pile up now for other people? As John said, no one's going to believe it. Well, the rest of my life, no matter what anybody says, I know it works. By the end of August, a year since they started this process, Anthony's done two rounds of experiments, and he's about to finish a final round. The plan is for Anthony to reproduce the great leukemia and pancreatic results one more time with perfect controls, including a special kind of control called a sham. John has asked Anthony to start writing up a paper to submit for publication while he's finishing the experiments. And he's more confident about the project than I've ever seen him. Just to let you know where I'm at, I'm excited about finishing this paper, putting my name on the paper. I'm willing to put my name out there so much that I'll be the senior author, the last author. And I'm willing to send in an NIH grant, I don't know if we'll get it together, for October. So this would be, you know, six-page, uh, $250,000 grant to pursue this work with Anthony. And I'm willing to, you know, I believe it so much that we're starting to administratively think about it and, uh, you know, move this forward. You know, if these controls work out well, his therapy's working at this stage of the game. And, at, you know... I wouldn't have predicted that. 
mean, I'm, I know I'm going to get criticism about it. I know they're like, what, you know, what are you doing? What is this? I, you know, I, I do you really believe this stuff? You know, I'm very serious about my reputation. And, you know, some scientists don't have an open mind. I mean, I'm definitely nervous about that aspect. Hello, Jonathan. How you doing? I'm doing okay. How are you? Very good. And then, bad news. Really bad news. I'm up at Skidmore with Anthony when John calls with the data about the final round of experiments. At first, they talk about the Excel spreadsheet with data from the control experiment called a sham. There was a bit of a strange result there. But the real bad news comes when John asks Anthony to open up the PowerPoint presentation and look at the data from the pancreatic experiments. PowerPoint. Let's see. Room temperature. Whoa. What is this uh, PowerPoint of? Well, the pulsing basically caused the cells to become resistant to the drugs, and they grew better. This is really weird because it's very opposite of what we saw in previous experiments. Yeah. It's a disaster. It's a huge setback. It's shocking. The data show that in the plate of treated pancreatic cells, the ones pulsed with electromagnetic waves and given a tiny dose of chemo, 100% of the cancer cells were alive after treatment. Meaning, not only did the pulsing not kill any cancer cells, but somehow the pulsing seemed to protect the cancer cells from being killed by the chemo. Anthony is stunned. He keeps saying the same thing again and again. All the other experiments show completely different results. I don't understand that. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's a slap in the face, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so I'll, I'll go through stepwise, okay? Because there, there's some things we definitely need to discuss here. So They talk for 45 minutes, going over every aspect of the experiment. Anthony had used a different microscope this time. Maybe that was a problem. The microscope light that Anthony used when he took time-lapse photos of the experiments was the light heating the cells, and the amp for the device had been outputting less power than usual. Maybe some of the components were damaged. But the upshot of these last experiments is different for John and Anthony. Anthony sees these results as a fluke, an outlier. The other results still seem valid to him. But for John, there's only one truth. If they want to publish, they've got to do more experiments. Anthony has to reproduce and confirm those great earlier results with controls. For me, doing this for 20-some-odd years or whatever it is, or, you know, it doesn't surprise me that it's going to be this complicated. Um, but, you know, I'm in it for the long haul as far as the collaboration is to try to figure this out. And um, we'll just keep at it, okay? Okay. But that wasn't what happened. In fact, for an entire year, John wasn't sure what was going on, and neither was I. He offered to go up to Skidmore to set up a lab for Anthony there if he couldn't come back down to Philadelphia, but that didn't happen. And then Anthony became very hard to reach. A couple of weeks after John talked to Anthony by phone for the first time in several months, I go and see John. He's decided to go up to Saratoga the following week to talk to Anthony face-to-face about the experiment. In the last year, John's become more of a skeptic partly about the device itself, but also about the collaboration with Anthony. Why would Anthony just drop out like this? 
If he really believes in it and he really believes those results, let's do it again. If you cure cancer cells, let's do it again. My lab is open. My lab is open. My expertise is open. I'm happy. You don't, you don't want to do it in Philadelphia? Let's do it in Saratoga. Ask him, why hasn't he taken me up on that? I mean, if, if, let me ask you a question. If you knew you had something that killed cancer cells, right, and you believed in it, you really believed in it, you could wait a year to try to prove that because one set of experiments didn't work? I mean, come on. This is one of the big differences between John and Anthony, between scientist and non-scientist. For John, having a year's worth of work suddenly thrown into question is a normal day at the office. But for Anthony, that's not normal, and it's not okay. The time in John's lab was a year of his life where he felt like John kept moving the goalposts. I felt that way too sometimes as I was watching. John kept saying he was amazed at what he was seeing and just about convinced. But then he'd wake up in the middle of the night with another experiment or control that he wanted to run. And there was no telling when it would end, which for him, again, is normal. But now Anthony wants to know, before he starts turning his life upside down again, what will count as proof enough for John? How many experiments? So let's say I do three works of, weeks of experiment and I only concentrate on these leukemia cells. And if I can kill at least 20% every single time, every week, will that do it? Would that be enough? Or do you want to see pancreatic die? Or do you want to see over? I mean, what exact buttons do I have to hit? When John gets to Saratoga, he and Anthony embrace and smile, and they're clearly glad to see each other. But as soon as they start talking about the experiments, they start arguing, and they don't understand each other. John keeps coming back to the same point. Why can't you accept that we haven't proven anything? in the court of scientific law. We haven't proven anything. But we have very intriguing results. That's fine. I mean, if you want to leave it at that, I, you know, you, you, you could say that. But, you know, there's a big difference between intriguing and promising results and actually showing and demonstrating that something works. There's a, there's a huge difference. So. 10 years from now, you know, would you still walk around campus and be like, you know what, I killed those cancer cells. I actually did that. I actually proved that this worked. Do you think, do you think deep down that's the way you feel? That's what I want to know. We're not, just talking about, we're not just talking about the last experiment, right? Just we're talking about the whole general. thing. Yeah. In general? Yeah. Are you kidding? I would frame this chart showing 43% okay, of the so leukemia I, cells dead, and I would say, Anthony, we nailed let me, them. Let me ask you a question. <laughs> let me ask you a question. If you're sitting on the cure for cancer, why aren't we doing the experiments? I, I can't afford it. So, so you're telling me, you're willing to say to the world that you think you have the cure for cancer, but you can't afford it. Yeah. Anthony says he's run out of money. He spent six years, including the time he worked on his own with Protozoa, putting his own money into these experiments. Equipment, travel, living expenses while he was at John's lab, Many, many thousands of dollars. He won't say exactly how much. And then after he got back from the last round of experiments at John's lab, it was like he was looking up from the microscope at his life for the first time in a while. I tell you, I came home from that year, and uh, I just look at the house, 
And I just see like, oh my God, I lost track of what's going on here. You know, this is, we've, you know, we need a new roof on the house and uh, we've got a huge uh, leak in the bathroom. You know, the plumbing's all screwed up and the, uh, I, you know, uh, I've been making too many sacrifices. John doesn't offer to fund another round of experiments. He's got a tight budget. And at this point, like I said, he's not feeling so hopeful about Anthony and his experiment. He's more optimistic about the 30-plus other experiments he's got moving ahead in his lab. And Anthony refuses to ask for money to proceed. He says that would be rude. But he says he may have a different solution to the money problem. He starts showing John his new website for his new nonprofit company called Novo Biotronics Incorporated, the future of biotechnology research. I mean, a lot of you know, dramatic statements, but... Apparently for the past year, Anthony's been forming this nonprofit company and building the website which has tabs for all the different research he hopes to do with the device. Not just cancer, but also Lyme disease, malaria. He doesn't get into the malaria or any part of that with John, but he does show him the pages and pages where he explains in detail the cancer experiments they've done, without mentioning John's name or the name of his lab, since he doesn't have permission. Anthony says his plan is to use the website to raise money so they can continue the experiments. I thought John might be angry. Why hadn't Anthony told him that this is what he'd been doing all year? But John's reaction is... I mean, this is amazing. This is, I, I wish that all the students or the graduate students or, you know, people or, or the scientists that believed in what they were doing took this sort of initiative. Wow. That's nice to hear. I think it's a beautiful website, Anthony. I think it's great. I think my only concern is, again, which is my overall concern of where things are at, is you have to be really careful here that really a trained eye or a trained scientist is going to immediately question the overabundance of data without the controls and without the reproducibility. So let me respond to this idea that uh, intelligent and expert trained scientists, if shown this data, might uh, dismiss it for lack of more information on the controls. And here's where I've been saving the best information uh, for last, for a sort of dramatic and controversial uh, revelation. Uh, I've had three um, uh, important scientists in the field, in the field of cancer research, contact me about my work. They have seen this data. They have seen all of our data. This changes the conversation entirely. Suddenly, John's reputation is on the line. I would never give that data out to another scientist. It wasn't controlled. That's highly inappropriate uh, behavior that you did, that you actually went behind my back and you sent this to other researchers where I allowed you to use my credibility in my lab to do this work. Okay, so uh, here's my response. First of all, if there was some breach in protocol I made by uh, sharing some preliminary data. Why didn't you ask me? Why didn't you say, look, someone's contacting me. Do you mind if I share some of our data together? Could I finish without being interrupted? If I broke some protocol, I apologize. Uh, You never told me, keep this data secret and don't show it to anybody. It just was given free. Even though Anthony promises he didn't mention John's name to these other scientists, if one of those scientists were to do a quick Google search, in a few clicks he could get to John, who would then be associated with data he would never want public. I'm sorry. Uh, I mean, uh, 
you know, it's it, to me as a composer, it's like, uh, you know, some violinist says, hey, do you have a piece for a violin? I say, well, I have a sketch. It's nothing really great, but I have a little start. Well, let me see what it is. Oh, sure, I'll send it along. So it's the same kind of thing. And, you know, uh, when people contacted you me. You sent it as a sketch, Anthony. You sent them data that is if we had done the proper controls. I, that's, that's false advertising. In one case, I met for hours with the director of a medical research hospital in the cancer division. And I explained to this doctor exactly, exactly what we did. She knew it was preliminary. She knew there were holes and things that had to be nailed down. She knew all the details of everything, looked at the data and said, yeah, let's go. Here's a seven page contract. So I'm just saying, I just you know, wanted to be part of the conversation. You asked me to respond. No scientist would take my preliminary data seriously. I'm sorry, that's wrong. And I think you need to make up your mind. Either the data, I, you know, this preliminary data I have is not worthy of another scientist's consideration or you're, mad at, or you're mad at me for showing it to another scientist who considered it worthy. Finally, John and Anthony asked for time to talk alone with no microphone. After a while, they made up but it doesn't seem like they're going to be working together anytime soon. What it felt like to sit in that room, it felt like watching a couple break up, which I felt more sad about than I'd expected to. They were this odd pair it was fun to root for. And on top of that, I just felt like cancer. Anthony's father died of cancer. John's aunt died of cancer. My mom died of cancer. Why can't we just get rid of this already? I think out of the three of us, only John, who deals with it every day, had realistic expectations when he started these experiments with Anthony. Even if you have a good idea, even if you have a potential sci-fi cure, it, it, it's just not that easy, you know? But if we want scientific breakthroughs, um, this is what it takes. We are trying to have breakthroughs. We're just not succeeding most of the time. Gabriel Rhodes. He's going to continue filming Anthony and John if either of them ever starts this research again. You can see clips from what he's filmed so far at thecuredocumentary.com. Coming up, trying something crazy, throwing a Hail Mary pass to solve a tough problem in your own personal life, a true story. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. This American Life, Myra Glass. Each week on our show, of course, we choose a theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, so crazy, it just might work. Stories of people trying a risky thing that nobody ever tries, and that is for a good reason. We have arrived at Act 2 of our show. Act 2, Benny takes a jet. So Benny was 23 in Utah, and he will want you to know before you hear anything else in this story that he knows that he was an immature 23 because he was gay and a Mormon which meant that he did not admit to others or himself that he was gay, so he was utterly unused to how to handle a crush, which is what this story is about, a crush. The crushy is 18 and Mormon, and Benny met him when he came in for a job interview. In retrospect, Benny says he was obviously straight, though at the job interview... He was flirtatious with me in, in that he wanted the job really bad, 
So he was very complimentary towards me. He was very, you know, thought he kept telling me, you're like the coolest guy I've ever interviewed with in my entire life. Like, you're so cool. You're the kind of guy that everybody wants to hang out with. And you've got this energy kind of emulating. And I was just, you know, I was so taken by him. And, you know, and he just had these long black eyelashes and these blue eyes. <laughs> and I was just all Cause, cause gawking at him. Really, tell me everything you remember about stuff he said and stuff you said. You know, I remember, I remember saying to him, you know, this isn't just a normal retail company. When people come through the door, it's very important to get intimate and just like lock eyes with people and make them feel like really seduce them. And he's like, kind of like I'm seducing you right now. And keep in mind, I mean, this boy wow. is is hopelessly straight. However, I was interpreting it <laughs> the way I wanted it to go. And he and I remember he kept doing that little every time it would be like a touche moment. He would reach over and like hit me kind of. Yeah, bro. <laughs> kind of hit me in the knee. And I just it was making me crazy. Oh, he touched you several times. So so you hire him for this job and then and then he's working there at the company. And how often would you see him? Well, I traveled Monday through Thursday. And then once I hired him, you know, it was it, I, I found myself finding all these excuses and reasons why I needed to be back in Utah. Oh, there's they're, they're having a there's a big HR meltdown with this at this store, and there I think there's a lot of theft, you know, problems. We're having theft control issues at this store. You know, someone would give me one little thing, and I would come roaring back on a one way ticket to Salt Lake City. You know, and so in was the, he in, that cute? I don't know what happened. I mean, what I mean now that I look back, when I show people pictures of him, I you know I if I you have pictures of him. Okay. <laughs> Well, I took several pictures of him. You know, his friend, uh, we, he, him and I ended up seeing each other. And I said, oh, I'm doing this end of the year slideshow of all of the employees. And, oh, I don't have any pictures of him. So is there any possible way that you do you have any on, you know, just lying around? Oh, my gosh. Yes, I have all these pictures of us when we went boating. And, and I, oh, perfect. You know, so he, he brings all these pictures. And I end up, of course, picking out all of the shirtless ones. And, uh Oh and, 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 and you know, and, and and he never and he never questioned. He oh yeah, this is a good one too. And I even remember him saying, "This one looks like some Abercrombie shot of him coming out of the water." And I said, "Yeah, I'll take that one too. I, I think everyone will like that one." And and did you use them? Actually, I did put a couple of them in the slideshow. But then when I was done, I never gave them back to his friend. I had them like stashed all over the place. I mean, at one point they were in my Book of Mormon. They were in my Bible. I was just such a mess, <laughs> such a just a boiling pot of crazy. I just it, it was so. I look back now and I and I I still don't even know who that person is to behave like that. And what did you say to yourself at the time? What did you think it was? I would never ever try anything. I would never because I always told myself I wasn't gay. That I was struggling with this thing that I didn't know what it was, and maybe other men, young men, struggle with the same thing. And maybe there would be a moment of vulnerability or a moment of confusion for him where he would be possibly feeling the same thing I was. And maybe, I don't know, a cuddle or a kiss on the cheek or something very minor. That's really as far as you would go in your head? When I was with him, I there were times... Oh, well, <laughs> I mean, it went way further than that, obviously, in my private spaces, you know, and right. uh, way further. I mean, as far as it could possibly go. But then I just felt so horrible. And then when I would see him, I would feel like I had done these things with him. And then I couldn't look at him. And there was all this guilt. I would then really beat myself up and, and say, oh, 
Benny, will you let Satan just get into your body like that and allow that? This is so evil. Why you, you know, I, I would go there. And then it would be this vicious cycle of Groundhog Day where I would then I would see him again. I would start right over from scratch. Coming out was not an option. It, it was so unfathomable. You a Mormon. Mormon and really believed it. I believed it so much that I had said so many times out loud, there is no way. I, the one thing I did know is that I would never come out and I would never abandon the church. I can't even begin to describe to you how exhausting it was. And and but at the same time, I was very quick to, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm going to admit these things. Um, around this time, there was a gay straight alliance group at a high school trying to form in Salt Lake. And I actually went to it to try and fight them off, to get the, not to pass, to be able to be at this school. I went and rallied there with some other Christians, Mormons. There was a big group. To prevent this group from existing. Yeah, because I was very dedicated to also killing this, quote, demon that was inside of me that I was told that was, I had allowed this to come in. I had chosen this. There was no, there was no really information out there that I was getting a hold of that people were born this way. Wait, wait, wait. You had never heard that people were born that way? No one I, ever said that? No, I had heard it, but it sounded... I didn't know a lot of people that agreed with that. So it sounded so foreign to me when people said it. And, 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 and because you were of trying the guilt... To, and when you were trying to um, prevent this group from starting up, did you feel like you were doing other people a favor? Or mm-hmm. was it not even... Oh, That was my way. That was my redemption and what I was behaving like. Thinking about guys, you know, going into chat rooms. Any of those things that I was doing on the side... I, I felt in the greater scope of things that I was carrying the banner of God. I didn't believe I was gay. I honestly think that's what it was. I don't think I truly believed I was gay. Anyway, back to the crush. Soon enough, the 18-year-old turns 19 and gets caught on a Mormon mission to Peru, which means it'll be gone for two full years. I was absolutely devastated. I went to his farewell and it was, you know, his parents were all about, oh, he loves you so much. You're the greatest boss. It's yada, yada. Of course, you know how I t- took all of that. I mean, just, you know, I'm just filing it in crazy town. The 19-year-old leaves. Benny stews for six months, driving his best friend Parker nuts with all of his obsessing. Parker, by the way, in the story, seems like the greatest guy in the world. Straight, Mormon, but understanding Benny better than Benny was understanding himself at the time. And it is with Parker at two in the morning that Benny comes up with his idea that is so crazy that it might just work. I said, we should go visit him in Peru. You know, and Parker says, you know what, Benny, let's go. Let's go. You, you, you let, Let's go visit him. Yeah, let's go see him. And he just was, and I said, I'm serious. Well, I will book the tickets tonight. And he said, okay. Benny then goes to the 19-year-old's parents and says that he's taking a vacation to Peru. Would they want him to bring a package or something from the family maybe? Seems like a nice offer. They say, of course. Everybody agrees to make it a surprise for the 19-year-old. More fun that way. So Benny and Parker fly to Peru, make their way to the remote mountain town where the 19-year-old was now a missionary. They wander around asking people, where is the Mormon church in town? I ended up, someone said, oh, yes, we know where the Mormoni or whatever they called it. They said, yeah, we know where the Mormons are. And so they f- told us where the, the chapel was. And we got to the chapel and these elders were just, oh my gosh, they're yelling through the church. Oh my gosh, buddy from Utah's here. And oh my gosh, he just showed up. Like who does that? That's the coolest thing. Dude, how expensive were those tickets? You know, just it just turns into this big. Did you feel guilty at all? Oh my gosh. It was this, I felt once I was there in the chapel and this started happening, all of a sudden this very dark cloud came over me of, boy, you are messing with fire. Because now you're in the Lord's house and you are waiting for this boy that you are crushing just obsessively over. 
And I, I, I became, I started to become very uncomfortable. And then all of a sudden, one of the elders came up and they said, he's here. I felt as if I was going to puke. And then he came in. He walked right in. And uh, he, when he walked in, he, he stopped in his tracks and he's no way. No. And he just, he dropped all of his books and he just, what? And he just, and he ran over to me and he just grabbed me and hugged me so just it was so tight and so you know and he's like what are you doing here and part he's like what and parker you know is friends with him so parker's like hey dude you know it's just like, parker's going along with this ridiculous just cockamamie thing that i have done you know and and he called his mission president or someone and said i have friends from salt lake city that are traveling through peru and they or he got permission or something to come and take time with us and so it's like 7.30 at night now. It's getting dark. And, you know, freaking Parker, he's like, okay, I'm going to, you know, and if you know anything about missionaries, you can't be away from your your companion that's with you. You can't separate from each other ever unless you're going to the bathroom. Right. And so, so Parker's like, I'm going to distract him enough where we're in a conversation where you can at least get a good 50 feet away from us. Where he can still see you, so it won't look weird, and you can spend some time with him and just talk to him, see how his mission's going. So him and I sat on the steps of these cathedral and I said, how's the mission going? And he started telling me and then he just starts to cry. And, and then he says, I feel like you're an answer to my prayer. Because I have been struggling so much here. My heart is ready to beat out of my bloody body. I mean, it's just, I remember this is your reaction. the pulse that was happening. It almost hurt. Because I, he said that you're the answer to my prayer. Yeah, and, and, and then he said, I've been struggling. I said, listen, I've been on a mission. I know what that feels like. I have been here. I know how confusing and difficult and lonely it can be. And he said, I, I just can't believe you came here. And, and, then he, and then he said, this has got to be the coolest thing anyone has ever done for me. To just come here and do something like this for me, to come and see me. And then... He's, he said, wow, he's like, Benny, I feel so much happiness seeing you. And you are that kind of person that has always filled me with joy and hope. And every time I'm around you, I want to be better. And then I just said, well, you know, I, I, I just, I love you a lot. And he said, I love you too. And then I, I, I it was like Tourette's, like, I, I, just, I, I couldn't even help myself. And I just said, no. I love you. And, and and then he kind of tilted his head and he looked at me and he said, I love you too, bro. Like it kind of then I, I saw in his face the way he looked at me. And then, you know, my eyes are starting to fill up with tears. I'm starting to panic. All of this that I've held inside of me is crumbling. I'm, you know, the quivering lip, the whole puppy face. The, I can't even imagine what he was seeing. And, uh, Parker, I look over. Parker, I see him in the background with his hand, like, cut it to his neck. Like, cut. he just was looking like Benny. Cut it. He was watching the body language. He could see what was unfolding. He was like, Benny, just, you know, cut it. And actually, this guy, he looked, he knew that I was, I had deviated from, I love you, bro. And, it, and then he's like, you know, I, we got to go. It's, it's getting really dark. And I was crushed because in that moment, it was like I'd been asleep and someone had woken me up. And all of a sudden, I, I, we were walking away and I said to Parker, he's straight, isn't he? And Parker said, Benny, he, yes, 
he is. And I just went crazy and started yelling at Parker. How could you let me do this? You're supposed to be my voice of reason. You're my best friend. I confided in you this. You know, you, you, this is your fault. You put these thoughts in my head. And I was so angry. I just started screaming at him in the middle of the street. And I was bawling like a crazy person and just saying, what is this feeling? And he's like, Benny, you're, you're feeling crushed. Like your heart's breaking. He's like, this is good. You're supposed to feel this. It's a little late. But, you know, and I'm like, don't tell me how to feel. And I want to go home. I don't even want to stay in Peru anymore. You know, and, I, and Parker just sat and he said, and I said, tell me this. Have you known all along that this was going to happen? He goes, well, to be honest, I didn't know you were going to do that. But of course I knew he was straight. I tried to tell you one time you got a little weird about it. And I just decided in my head, Benny needs to experience this. You know, I cried for hours and hours. Parker just listened to me. And then he was the one that said, you imagine, Benny, feeling this, but having someone reciprocating it. And I said, you mean with a, a gay guy? And he said, well, yeah, because that's the only guy that's going to do that with you. And then it was this journey to coming out of the closet. That's what That was what cracked it open, you know? Benny now lives in New York City. He has a boyfriend. I'm putting all my eggs in one basket. Yes. I'm betting everything I got on you. What, I'm giving all my love to one baby. Lord help me if my baby don't come through. Our program is produced today by Jonathan Menhivar with Ben Calhoun, Sarah Koenig, Mickey Meek, Lisa Pollock, Brian Reed, Robin Semyon, Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder. Seth Lind is our production manager. Emily Condon's our office manager. Music help from Damian Gray from Rob Geddes. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. Special thanks today to Lisa Sanders, Mina Chang, Megan Robinson, and Stephen Grimes. Paul Hoffman, who you heard at the beginning of the program, is president of the Liberty Science Center. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. WBEC Management Oversight for our program by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia. You know, you really should have seen him at the WBEC All-Staff Halloween Party in his pigtails. Somewhere over rainbow. I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of This American Life. Public Radio International.